Spirituality Challenged is a podcast recorded on Canadian Treaty 1 territory, and that the land on which we gather is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Diné people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We acknowledge that our water is sourced from Shoal Lake 41st Nation, which is located on Treaty 3 territory. Spirituality Challenged respects the spirit and intent of treaties and treaty making and are open to future partnerships with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people in the spirit of truth, reconciliation, and collaboration. This episode is dedicated to my grandmother Blanche, who passed away on November 10th, 2023. She was loved by her community of neighbors in downtown Winnipeg, St. Vital, St. River, and Winnipeg's Southeast Personal Care Home where she comfortably took her last breath. She was a mother to three boys, including my dad, a great storyteller, a fantastic writer, and an actor at Winnipeg Fringe until around 2010. She has also been an avid supporter of me as a music composer, hip-hop artist, video game enthusiast, and web and graphic designer. She would always tell me that I'm going to make it someday, and hopefully through this podcast she's right, and that her spirit will be proud of what I've recorded. Rest in peace, Grandma. I love you very much. Hello, Aaron Parsons here. Just a quick note, this episode was a bit rushed because I was recovering from COVID while writing and recording. Plus, I've been coughing a lot for the past month, so that would explain the not-so-great editing. I promise I'll have a fun not-so-dark episode the following week, and some good reflective bonus episodes for February, and hopefully I'll be recovered by then. Enjoy. June 24th, 2003 was my 20th birthday. I started at and was fired from my first telemarketing job that day. I went on to celebrate my birthday with my family, but I didn't want any presents. Even though I was quite angry about being unemployed on my first day outside of my teens, I inherited a car. The car was a beat-up 1988 Toyota Corolla from my uncle who lived in Winnipeg. Sure, I couldn't drive, but I needed the money for insurance. Minimum wage wasn't even going to get me good coverage. How was it going to pay for repairs? I had to figure all this out. So I asked myself, how could I get work from home instead of throwing applications out there to ableist companies that will pay me not even a tenth of what I'm worth? I did what any tech-savvy person would do back in the day. I got on the internet, searched dogpile.com, and back then I was naive. I didn't know much about how messy our economy was. And I didn't care. I was ready to sacrifice everything to make money my way. Here's what I wanted. I wanted to work my own hours. I wanted to control how much I lift. I wanted a job free of micromanagement. I didn't want to work with cash unless I could take my time handling it. And speaking of which, I wanted to have at least some control of who my customers were. So, I did the stupidest thing ever. I signed up for Herbalife in July. I was excited. I was going to sell dietary products to random strangers while living with my parents and being mentored by a guy from California named Klaus. 
I would keep the inventory in my bedroom, I would take an ad out in the community newspaper, and I'd give people the secret to losing 60 pounds while crafting testimonials of my own using formula shakes, salted protein bites, and chai concentrate while exaggerating how it would affect my own personal health. But deep down, I had so many questions. My only job experience outside of being a telemarketer was stocking shelves and flipping burgers at McDonald's. How was I going to sell when I didn't even know what to say when people would say no? What was I going to do if people wondered if this was a scam? Thinking back on my two-month journey through my first work-at-home experience, I really should have asked this one question. What's a multi-level marketing scheme? Welcome to Spirituality Challenge, dear listener. On this podcast, we uncover the rarely discussed history and expose sources behind controversial Christian ideologies while speaking truth to power. We try to cover as much ground within an hour on one topic in each episode, so sit back, relax, and prepare to be challenged. So if you've heard the names Amway or Tupperware, or if you're older, you're probably aware of Young Living, Primerica, Paparazzi, and Mary Kay, you know the ways your family members or good friends both use and sell associated products with these companies from their homes. Most of the time, these are women selling and using the products, and the ones who are really into it like to call themselves boss babes. One in five people are in an MLM, a direct sales company or a company with network marketing. And over 99.9% of the people involved with these kind of companies or movements lose more money than they actually make, even if they make a huge amount of sales. According to another podcaster, Chris Stern, it's actually better to go gamble in Vegas than it is to sell such products. So where did this all start? There are many, many podcasts out there that discuss MLMs, and they all say that Company X was the first MLM. And I'm pretty sure this episode will be no different. So here at Spirituality Challenged, we conclude that the first inventor of multi-level marketing was G.R. Watkins, who launched the G.R. Watkins Medical Company in 1868. They're still selling soaps and home remedies through a mixture of consultants and stores in the United States today. In the later 1800s, J.R. Watkins distributed their products through associates not on payroll, who earned commission on products that were sold in the town square. However, associates were officially paid only when they recruited other associates, which makes Watkins Company the first example of an MLM. Watkins didn't actually come up with the official term for this system at the time, which is why when one puts into Google who was the first MLM, many other sources come up claiming different companies like Avon or Amway. There was also the California Perfume Company who opened up shop in 1890 and grew to over 10,000 consultants. 
1937, they renamed the company to Avon, and for over 50 years, tried to hold on to the title as the first MLM in the world. The Fuller Brush Company also tried to hold the title as the first MLM. In 1906, they began business as a household cleaning product company and sold products through door-to-door -door salesmen. In 1968, they were bought out by the Sarah Lee Corporation and are still an operational subsidy of the company today. And then there's Neutralite, a vitamin-based company that started up in the early 1940s selling personal care products as well as nutrition and household products. Two neutralized salesmen named Jay Vandell and Richard DeVos eventually found Amway, which we are going to touch on later. So if you remember the previous episode on New Thought and the Word of Faith movement, you'll understand that there is something here that is also being sold. The one and only chance to become more powerful, blessed, or privileged than everyone else. The one and only chance to become independent, to be free to choose, to not worry about paying too much in taxes, and to not worry about the government taking over your life. And you don't have to worry about owning nothing and being happy. You're sold the belief and the confidence to succeed in sales. And they'll tell you that all you need to do is use the product, and when people see what this thing does to make your life better, they'll not only want you to buy the products, but also sell fresh units of the purchased products to their friends. These ideas aren't new. They've been taken from rich moguls and prayer breakfasts in the 1950s, and co-opted by a guy named William Penn Patrick. Patrick was born on a farm near Roper, North Carolina on March 31, 1930. He served in the armed force during World War II, attended the University of Illinois, and then moved on to Sacramento State College to study history and political science. Despite studying these two subjects, Patrick was much more interested in sales and being an entrepreneur. After graduating, he started out selling cookware to families on a military base. He later moved on to operating a gas station and also sold jewelry. Despite all his efforts at entrepreneurship, Patrick became broke in 1960. And even though none of his ventures were turning out a profit, he had a dream and he continued to try to become a Californian multimillionaire. In 1964, Patrick went to a garage sale in San Rafael, California. The homeowner was selling off Zoline Cosmetics and other beauty supplies. Patrick bought in and spent $16,500 for the inventory and started the business of Holiday Magic. And how he got that $16,500, it's still unknown. I guess we could say he smelled an opportunity? <laughs> Patrick recruited distributors called Holiday Girls who would sell the cosmetics at parties or door-to-door. -door. And those girls also recruited other girls to sell products. The products had names like Lemon Face Splash, Strawberry Frappe Cleanser, and Papaya Du Moisture Creme, and the sellers claimed that the makeup had organic ingredients. Patrick attended some of his Holiday Girl Company gatherings and would give some of the following maxims that would motivate the sellers at these parties. 
The mind is like a fertile field. Its size, the limits of your imagination. It, like the field, will grow whatever you plant. One seed planted and properly nourished with warmth and moisture will return thousands of such seeds. Work is required to keep the weeds from choking it, and work is required to nourish it, because we know that everything has its price. This was also inspired by Donald Trump's Presbyterian minister, Norman Vincent Peale, from the Marble Collegiate Church in Manhattan. As a young man, Donald Trump grew up hearing the gospel of success at the Marble Collegiate Church in Manhattan. Donald's father made sure to expose him to Norman Vincent Peale. How then can you face the future with confidence? It elevates capitalism, honors wealth. By being 100% alive, you are endowed with the tremendous powers of God and you trouble with it, but you can handle it. Yep, these charlatans actually said all this. This had all the harmful teachings of prosperity bundled up with the promise that if you work hard, you'll experience God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. You make money, you get blessed. Something that not many people in MLMs actually experience at all. The ideology behind holiday magic had all the hallmarks of a pyramid scheme, which requires investors to recruit other investors ad infinitum with dubious promises of product distributorships or earnings. The success of holiday magic was almost instant. Patrick earned nearly $1 million his first year in operation and repeated the feat many times over for the next several years. By 1968, he estimated his own net worth at $25 million. Flush with cash, he began spending lavishly, buying a yacht and several airplanes. He also operated a leadership school, teaching people the same principles in the recordings that I shared, while also throwing in pop psychology and scary team building exercises. I would tell that story here, but even researching that was too much for my mental health. If you want to get an idea of what Patrick inspired some people to do before and around his death involving a plane crash, check out the first season of a podcast called The Dream. There was actually one point in time where the human potential movement in itself was being sold in the 1980s. It was a time when New Thought was taking off in New Age circles all over the country. The money circulating in these circles was inside a special money-making scheme based on abundance rather than scarcity. The money circulation was based on cooperation instead of competition. It was an enlightened method of creating and sharing the wealth. It was a new form of economics at the time called the airplane game. The chairs in this game are shaped like a pyramid, where the pilot is in the front row, two pilots are in the second row, and in the two remaining rows, there were four flight attendants and then eight passengers in the last row who were new recruits who paid $1,500 each to participate in the game. The money from the eight passengers goes to the pilot at the top. The two co-pilots split off and start their own airplanes, and then the passengers, they became the flight attendants, and then eight new passengers had to be recruited before playing the game again. 
If a passenger moves up four levels and becomes a pilot in a new plane, they get the next eight people who join and make $12,000 each time they're a pilot. There are many people who have played this game so often back in the 80s that they were making six figures in weeks. People like ministers, dentists, and actual pilots were playing the game because the game was like passing around drugs, but the drug in this case was money. And it wasn't long until the game was stopped because of complaints being filed with local authorities in South Florida. Soon, the airplane game was shut down everywhere else. Everyone went their separate ways, and no one talked about the airplane game again. Between 1965 and the 80s, the Federal Trade Commission had targeted MLMs like Holiday Magic due to concerns about deceptive practices. Because MLMs rely on recruitment and emphasize earnings through downline sales, the FTC has taken action against a handful of MLMs that engaged in deceptive income claims, false promises, and lack of retail sales. The FTC intervened addressing these issues while providing guidelines to help consumers identify legitimate MLMs and avoid potential scams. The FTC tried to go after Amway, but in 1979, they reached a settlement with Amway before a final court decision regarding their practices was made. At least that's how the mainstream news reported the story. The case did not go to trial, and Amway did its best to cover up its wrongdoing. And the reason they were able to do this cover-up? If you're not familiar with the DeVos name, this family has ties and financial connections with the Heritage Foundation, the Family Research Council, and Focus on the Family. This is why Amway was able to change the landscape of the MLM, self-help, and other industries surrounding New Thought. Because they got the financial backing of the religious right. The settlement resulted in a set of conditions and changes to Amway's business practices. The settlement emphasized the importance of genuine retail sales of products to customers. This principle became a benchmark for evaluating the legitimacy of MLMs. Future MLMs had to demonstrate a focus on selling products to retail customers rather than primarily relying on recruitment. It also underscored the need for clear and accurate disclosure of income potential for MLM participants. Future MLMs were expected to provide realistic expectations about potential earnings to avoid misleading future sellers who joined strictly to get rich quick. There are other factors the settlement did to influence business practice, and I'm not gonna list everything here. However, I will lastly note that it served as a legal precedent. It had a hand in influencing how courts and regulatory bodies approach MLM cases. The conditions and requirements set in the settlement became reference points for evaluating the legality of MLM business practices. So to summarize, while the Amway settlement contributed to shaping the MLM landscape, challenges and controversies continue to come up in the industry, including their connections to cults and populist radicalization. Ongoing regulatory actions and legal cases continue to refine standards and expectations for MLMs to operate ethically and within the bounds of the law. Eventually, however, Presidents Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump became big supporters of Amway since members of their parties were successful sellers. 
It's people like you who show us the heart of America is good. The spirit of America is strong and the future of America is great. You give meaning to words like entrepreneur, self-reliance, personal initiative, and yes, optimism and confidence. And you will lead America to take freedom's next step. You strengthen our country and our economy, not just by striving for your own success, but by offering opportunity to others. But we need even more of the kind of opportunity direct selling represents. Your industry gives people a chance, after all, to make the most of their own lives. And to me, that's the heart of the American dream. Cutting-edge health and wellness formulas and a system where you can develop your own financial independence. The Trump Network offers people the opportunity to achieve their American dream. So the million-dollar question that everyone listening has on their minds right now is how all this is connected. Why do Christian women, and depending on what's being sold, certain types of men, how do they all get sucked into these cult-like movements? Well, for one thing, MLMs tend to fester in evangelical churches because women are taught they're not allowed to work outside the home by the man of the house. In certain rural communities, it's encouraged to homeschool their kids because the world or wokeness or kitty litter in schools, it's going to encourage children to become furries or to rebel. But according to some women who got out of the movement, either MLMs or evangelicalism, it's actually difficult to raise a family, especially a large family, on a single income with a dad that works over 10 hours a day and burns himself out several times in his life. So wives have to work somehow, but not work in the traditional sense of getting hired and working for a paycheck. Which is why all the MLMs have a remote work from home arrangement that promises big rewards for selling mummy products. Of course, based on the history that we had discussed earlier, the scheme takes a lot of money from what was made in sales as well as what her husband brings home. That's why many, many wives are still starting at the bottom and stuck at the bottom while they're selling chasing a pipe dream of extra riches so her husband doesn't get too tired from working overtime. Eventually, the homeschooled kids get recruited into the scheme as free labor. I mean, look at all those real-life math skills that they're learning. And no wonder some of these most useless products, especially essential oils, are marketed to Christian women. But for those at the top of every pyramid, they know the secret. It's also about belief and people. Let's discuss the people concept. New people need to be recruited consistently to MLMs so that the marketing keeps going. And we're not just talking about getting new repeat customers. We're talking about getting new sellers of MLMs to constantly sign up. Now, it doesn't matter if we're talking about Avon, Tupperware, or pastors getting more people to come to their churches. The more people are brought in and signed up, the more people go out to bring other people in, who can then bring more people still. And the cycle continues. But what happens here is that the benefits flow upward to the people at the top of the pyramid, constantly producing the need to reach out to more people, since the product itself was never really the point anyway. 
The people are always the fuel that keeps the engine running. According to a certain company's math, though, if each member recruits five new people, a movement would have almost two and a half million people by the end of a fiscal year. And it makes absolutely no freaking sense, especially when a seller lives in a small town and has to go to other towns to recruit more sellers or more distributors. Eventually, what happens when word gets out to almost everyone about an MLM or a certain seller or recruiter is that almost everyone who's been pitched about the MLM is either already recruited as a seller or they're already rejecting that particular seller or the product itself. A particular area becomes oversaturated with sellers or the only people buying the products are previous customers or other sellers of the products. So in order to keep recruiting going while covering up the math, the head offices of MLMs have to make recruiting a game so that there are few winners while everyone else loses. And this recruitment model is even used in the church. You can see it in the way families try to get other families to go to church. They use their faith and their testimonies to recruit new members to get saved and volunteer. They also trust those people to bring their friends next Sunday or the Sunday after next Sunday. There's spiritual products to sell like New Thought Name It Claim It classes or sermons in tape or digital format. And in a lot of big mega churches, the selling by ordinary laity works. But to a point, the words they use, the quote unquote goals they set, the judgment against those who aren't super ambitious when it comes to preaching the gospel, Putting that all together, it makes me wonder if certain denominations of churches are MLMs themselves. There's fake friendships, there's random direct messages on social media with the intention to check in about financial or spiritual situations. It's all part of a system of control. It's just like signing your friend up to sell the same protein shake while micromanaging and checking in on their half-hearted sales quotas. And on top of church, they still recruit new Christian women to literal MLMs like Tupperware or Amway. A friend told me a story. A rich family at his church he grew up in got even richer from poorer folks of the church because of the MLMs that they lured people into, including himself and members of his family. The church leadership did object to this in some way, but it was equivalent to saying nothing because apparently they are going to bite the hand that feeds them in the first place, right? Eventually, it got to a point where a kid that my friend went to youth group with, he immediately became an atheist after this rich family saw the death of his fellow member's father and he used it as an opportunity to try to recruit the kid's mother to one of their MLMs. That's when my friend finally spoke up and got his family out of the church as quickly as possible. We live in an age where corporate accountability is constantly being addressed by many social media accounts. Between being cancelled and the pressure for PR to virtue signal morality and politics, a ton of corporate issues come with many difficult questions for consumers to address. And in the case of MLMs, people are starting to ask if they are cults. 
Now, we're going to talk about belief here, and the typical way of determining if any movement is a cult is by using something called the bite model. Let's define each of the bite model elements in more detail. So we're going to define each of the bite model elements in more detail in a particular document that I pulled up. In terms of what we're defining, we're defining things like behavioral control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. So in terms of behavior control, to engage in behavior control, the group may modify its members' behavior with reward and punishments, they promote obedience and dependence, they regulate what people eat, drink, and wear if they're in the cult, they financially exploit people, and they require you as a member to seek permission to make certain decisions. So for information control, a cult may forbid its members from speaking with critics and ex-members. It'll stop information from being spread outside the group, and it's going to create an inside versus outsider doctrine. There's encouragement to report others' misconduct through spying, and of course, there's propaganda. The group engages in thought control by putting out a mentality of us versus them. They encourage cult members to adapt the group as their identity. They use hypnosis, they encourage stopping people from thinking for themselves, they only allow positive thoughts, and they reject facts, logic, and critical thinking. When a cult engages in emotional control, they will ensure that cult members fear leaving the group, they'll promote guilt and worthlessness and shaming, they'll love bomb each cult member with affection, especially if they find that that cult member is starting to question things or starting to do things that they're uncomfortable with. They will shun cult members if they disobey, and they will teach all their members that there is no happiness outside of a cult. An MLM doesn't have to meet each of these particular points that I just described, but it can still be considered a cult. But still, the question is why? The answer is very deep and it's very complicated. But one thing we need to address is that MLMs are also about something valuable called human potential belief. Human potential belief is something that is valuable in rich white neoliberal and religious circles. This is why Amway is as successful as it is. This is why Unjected's conservative marketing campaigns are taking off. This is why anti-vax lifestyle brands, they double their profits every single year. This is why groups like the Koch brothers invest in the Daily Wire and conferences like Moms for Liberty and Turning Point USA where many people who want to quote-unquote save America, they can attend for free. This is why people like Iman Ghazi and Andrew Tate are able to make tons of money. And this is why MLMs are still around and going strong today. When you understand the logic, dear listener, MLMs aren't based on rational business logic. They're based on ideology. They're based on an American form of faith that comes from the human potential belief and its faith based on a Protestant work ethic that is void of Christian charity. We're just going to take a few moments to go back to revisiting Amway for a second. While at Neutralite, Vendel and DeVos realized they weren't selling vitamins. They were selling an income scheme. And regardless of the product, that scheme came from a very zealous form of Dutch Calvinism. 
Making money to them was a godly task, and the opposite of doing godly tasks to them was poverty. And poverty is a form of sin to these two founders of Amway. A rich person can buy their way into heaven, while a poor person deserves hell. When Amway first started out, they preached this Calvinism to their sales reps. They even made people who failed to reach sales quotas. They made them feel ashamed. So even if 99% of the people sign up as sellers and they're set to fail, the failures don't just encourage them to decide whether to give up or not. The sellers who fail, they feel ashamed for being stuck in the sin of poverty. And on the other side, if there are sellers that are successful, they're earning money and good money I might add, it's defined as being blessed, magically blessed. The 1% who win are the ones deserving fulfillment, self-respect, and happiness. The income scheme itself was full of manipulation and gaslighting from the start. And yet they tell potential recruits that you can be a millionaire, but it's all up to you and the choices you make. Because Amway started out strictly as a Christian company, the sales team avoided recruiting people from the city and focused on fundamentalist Christians in small towns. They recruited pastors and women from small churches who then spread the ideology of the Amway prosperity gospel. Amway in its Christian form is a harsh income scheme that is based on morality. Putting everything we talked about in this podcast, it seems to me like the real product a lot of American MLMs sell is salvation through financial freedom. MLMs, the Human Potential Movement, New Thought, they're successful because they prey on natural conflict that comes from systematic inequality. An individualized promise to fix a pain point right away is something that can easily get people spending money. In a capitalist society, every customer is promised that their health, finances, and relationships can be amazing if dark money is funneled into an alternative community surrounding a certain belief in ideology. And sure, there are sometimes tips or products that are sold just to help people with a pain point. But because benefits go to the top and to the dark side of the intellectual web eventually, there's a certain kind of radicalization towards a gospel or a suspicious ideology if a customer's life has been changed soon after the purchase. Depending on the product, the MLM group is selling miracles through essential oils, which can lead to a conversation about straight white American Jesus, or even New Age beliefs manifestation, or it can even go as far as recruiting people for the New Apostolic Reformation or the Word of Faith movement itself. On the surface, it is very easy to determine that a person can be a product. But belief is also something that is powerful in this business world. I just want to share that after my wife and I sold my house, I was briefly sucked into the world of Tony Robbins, self-improvement, and the pursuit of wealth and good health. Because I didn't realize that actual self-improvement is a marathon and not a sprint, I was becoming bitter while exercising and trying to freelance as a web designer, all while getting into self-improvement and not seeing the results I wanted instantaneously. 
When I realized what my anger was doing to my family, I eventually warned my wife and sister-in-law who were into Tupperware and trying to make money from blogs that we had to get out of this alternate universe. Dear listener, while I can't speak much more on this podcast about the negative effects of MLM ideology for women, and there are plenty of other podcasts that do that, I want to share with you the perfect Facebook comment I found that articulates what I discovered in terms of how self-improvement can lead young boys to becoming radically involved with incels, groups like the Proud Boys, or the Canadian Save the Children Freedom Convoy. Here's what the comment says. Most self-help stuff also runs your algorithm down the Ben Shapiro, Tucker Carlson, and Joe Rogan rabbit hole. So do men's rights or alpha male content. There's a massive group of interconnected content that makes the algorithm funnel eventually to Nazi content. Most of it is stuff majorly viewed and consumed by 16 to 25 year old boys. It's pretty terrifying how effective it is. It starts with content addressing searches like, how can I make girls interested in me or why don't women like me? Which points them to videos telling them about self-improvement techniques to get females more interested or to be able to have a one night stand with them. Once these are watched enough, you'll eventually come to content talking about the problems with today's women, which will get you to anti-feminism content. That naturally leads to anti-woke content, and you're now listening to Shapiro and the like who will tell you that the problem isn't with you, but with leftist woke culture that hates you, and you need to fight against it. Keep going, and it will eventually show you videos espousing the Great Replacement Theory, and at that point, it's not a huge jump to get into the Jews and minorities controlling the world and trying to rid the world of all the cis white men. By that point, you are indoctrinated. You start hating anyone who supports anything these talking heads say is bad, and you are convinced you are the persecuted party in society. And if someone is mentally vulnerable enough, that's when they slip into the QAnon, David Duke, or Charlie Kirk stuff and become fully radicalized. They begin not only consuming the actual insane political content, but they actively seek to bring others to their ideology. And it all starts with an adolescent boy wanting to know how to interact with girls in order to find some intimacy. Dear listener, I know I'm making a bold claim here, but it has to be said. The way that MLMs, the self-help industry, and New Thought are able to hide their true nature is by developing a cult-like environment. Think about it. How else can powerful people operate these kinds of businesses? Is it because they put in the hard work? They put in six grand and they only make 60 bucks back? If this kind of stuff was presented like a straight up business class or all the information was available for free, the whole thing would self-destruct because of the truth. See, people need to be distracted, so what happens with the dark money can be covered up. The distractions are the sermons around sales, the random Napoleon Hill maxims thrown into speeches, or the life story of the person recruiting another member. Those are used to keep members or enthusiasts of this kind of stuff under control. Sellers, scammers, course teachers, life coaches, and even people who mean well and want to add value. They need to dominate the space in order to make money. But in the end, there's fraud on an industrial scale. 
it's systematic, and people are still falling for the tricks of how to win friends and influence people. It's propaganda and thievery at an industrial scale, and the society we live in supports it. I know that my focus for today's episode is on the dark money connections of these economic trends with fundamentalism and evangelicalism. But I believe that selling belief, capitalism, conspiracy theories to wake people up, and people being left behind by a changing system all intersect into an issue that is too deep to solve individually. And because of how deep this is, the last thing we need to do is to shame people for trying to sell in MLMs. There are tons of reasons why the lure of money-making scams is strong for so many people who struggle with their finances, people who struggle with their health, people who struggle with their self-esteem. People jumping into MLMs, they don't do it just to escape from poverty or the rat race. Sometimes they join MLMs for the community. Some join to feel special. Some join because what's actually being sold can be connected to a seller's passion, even if they aren't making much money. One big reason is that the world around us is constantly changing, including the job market. And while professional success can still be earned if one successfully passes the gatekeeping of being recruited for a six-figure job, a college degree to earn a living really shouldn't be a requirement. There are many marginalized folks who don't want to be stuck at a desk all day, but at the same time, they don't want to work until they collapse on the couch after a 16-hour shift. They may enjoy working with their hands, but in many jobs, the work that they do it makes their fingers bleed eventually. And it's not wrong to want to escape the 9 to 5 lifestyle, it's just that in order to do it ethically, it's going to take a lot of work, years of sacrifice, and even years where there won't be anything such as a vacation or even a profit. And even if some people have the privilege or the money or the support or the past clients to keep a business going, there's always work involved. That is unfortunately the sad nature of hustle culture. That is the backbreaking reality of the American dream. That is why it's the AM way. I also want to note that for the record, there are some useful products that are sold out in many MLMs. My wife and I still have Tupperware and Pampered Chef products in our tiny apartment kitchen. But even if we know how useful they are, we're not putting them on such a high pedestal to get other people to become salesmen or trying to get people to show that they're awesome and that they'll be confident influencers. We live in a society and there are certain needs that everyone has in order to live. We also have to keep our own privilege in check because some of the Tupperware we have was given as gifts from relatives who don't sell anymore. In fact, Many of the so-called nice things we have, they were bought secondhand at garage sales. So, are there any individual actions we can take here? Most likely not. And that's because our world was crafted by the biggest of the early wellness industry, the first self-help gurus, the oldest MLMs, and their new thought ideologies. MLMs and the economy hold critical political sway. That's why its tenets are rarely questioned. Evangelicalism has influenced MLMs as well, and MLMs have influenced the very nature of working a job or the rituals that we do on Sundays. 
the average person finds it hard to believe that a business could ever be a cult. Only with some deep investigation and research can people figure out if something is a cult or not in the cases of the wellness industry, self-help, and MLMs. People in MLMs need to see the fraud themselves. You can't convince them. I think the best thing we can do for now is that if we see a friend is selling something from a known MLM or sharing some pretty crazy stuff on Facebook with cultish ideologies that are connected, we just have to call things out and don't give them any money. And while me and my wife lean more towards socialism when it comes to our economic views politically, I think everyone should at least try their hand at starting a side hustle with a skill or thing that they're passionate about if they have some privilege to make money doing something they love. It could be drawing on commission, making music or graphics for a video game, doing voiceover work, doing social media for someone. The point is that the focus should be on the value provided rather than the payment or the pushing of an ideology of prosperity and hard work. But even if a friend or family member gets out of self-help or an MLM, they'll still need time to deprogram from the cultish mentality that they were in. It's not enough just to leave or get out. Remember, these people don't fully understand what they've been a part of. Your friend or family member is still carrying around strange beliefs, sometimes even still preaching those beliefs. They may have gone so deep with a movement or a church or even a trafficking ring that they'll need a psychologist or psychiatric help. They need time and help to get over the politics of hypercapitalism and the Dutch Calvinized Protestant work ethic while breaking off negative thinking towards social services, welfare, education, free healthcare, and civic or civil services. They have to sadly learn the value and not optional nature of true individual work. Work where you can do what you love creating something on your own. At this point, I think it's up to the next generation of business folks and entrepreneurs to systematically change how the economy works. It has to come to a point where the concept of large corporations exploiting resources for profit turns into an unwelcome ideology. The next generation who runs the economy has to somehow change the very foundation of business so that companies exist solely to serve the community and the environment. We have to get to a point where profit is not the primary goal, but a side effect of successfully serving clients or customers. We must also get to a place where celebrities and so-called thought leaders aren't put on a pedestal all the time. It would be better for fully tax-funded educators and knowledge bearers to go down in history. And this means that in order to solve certain pain points in our lives, Intellectual pursuits, lifelong learning, and wisdom sharing must be valued more than fame, material wealth, and for-profit education. And sorry to sound kind of doomerish here, but the only way to get there is either through a civil war or society completely collapsing. It's going to be a very long time before these industries we covered today are gone. They're built on struggles that everyone has every day. MLMs are hypercultural, not countercultural. MLMs, the self help industry, the wellness industry, I've said all those names. 
Any big names in these movements are the biggest cults in America next to evangelicalism. All in business suits, not just like shamans, they're large groups of people, not small sects or offshoots of a hippie community. And they use the familiar language of capitalism, working hard, and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. MLMs are cults built on the system, and they're built on the system of capitalism. Before we say goodbye, dear listener, I almost forgot that I need to share how my story ended with Herbalife. After I put out my Herbalife ad in the paper, an old man called my parents. My dad picked up the phone. It's for you, he said. I was excited. I was about to make my first sale with my first customer and get tons of cash and eventually move out on my own. I grabbed the phone and an old man asked, Hey, your ad in the paper, does it work? I froze. My mind became a complete blank. I couldn't open my mouth. I think something short-circuited in my brain. I quickly hung up the phone and sent the inventory back to Klaus and I quit Herbalife before my first attempt at college in September. And sadly, I'm still on that quest to figuring out how to work on my own terms today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Spirituality Challenged. Next week, before we get into our bonus episodes, we're going to do a fun little episode about something completely different, the Christian techno scene. 